If you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn to uh, the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 26. And as I uh, alluded to last week, uh, we will close out this chapter today. This is a really good section and it really has to be taught in its entirety. Uh, And uh, so we're going to close it out today. There's a number of things we want to see here. Uh, But in summary of chapter 26, I, I want you to uh, I want you to remember that in this chapter, we kind of broke it down into three sections. And in section one, we saw the, the fool in his folly, the dog returning to his vomit, verses one through 12. And we, we laid that out for you and gave you some great principles there. Then we moved into section two, which, uh, you know, we looked at and examined a slothful man who also the Bible calls him a, a sluggard. And he you know, very lazy, and and we covered all of that and got all that taken care of. And then last week, actually, we entered into the third section, but the bulk of that material is in where we're at today, and this will be finishing in our chapter, and we'll look at the the tail bearer or the uh, backbiter or the slanderous person that is talked about in here in this chapter. And uh, this person who will be used uh, of the devil to break, and we talked about this last week, the unity of Christianity by simply sowing discord and uh, amongst the brethren. That We also talked about that briefly, but we'll see it in a little more depth this week. Now, doctrinally, all this stuff in chapter 26, as most of the book of Proverbs, will be about, we know this, the Antichrist and his crowd. All this negative people, negative stuff always goes back to um, the Antichrist and is people who are doing all of this against the nation of Israel in the tribulation period. You don't go very far in Psalms chapter 1 where it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners. Then you find the seed of the scornful. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And, and if you look at Psalms chapter 1, the context there uh, is, a, is the nation of Israel uh, being blessed by staying away from it. And if you look in that chapter, and certainly in Psalms 2, the context will be the second coming of Christ. So it all fits into that doctrinally. They, uh, the Antichrist, and you find many examples of this in the Bible, through their slander and breaking the bonds of the brotherhood and sowing discord, turning families against family. It's all laid out for you uh, in the Old Testament and, and into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, you know, sowing gifts toward to destroy the nation of Israel. And we already see that today beginning to unfold in a great way. <clears throat> Not only is the world today totally against the nation of Israel, uh, with the exception of America and maybe England, uh, but we are fast turning the page on the nation of Israel. Um, all the nations, the United Nations, everybody has taken a stand against the nation of Israel. And that will only get worse. Not only that... But we're seeing it into the ranks of Christianity. I cannot tell you how many of of churches are going anti-Semitic and against the nation of Israel. And it's just an incredible, fast-paced moving right along. So we we understand how that all fits in. But inspirationally, and we've been trying to balancing it back and forth, uh, we have seen over the last couple of weeks that all this will be uh, for us as God's children. Uh, and it's a great practical lesson uh, on our lives and what we deal with in life and uh, and basically learning in the midst of all the conflict and trials in the world today, learning to rest in the peace of God uh, by the promises of God and, and how vitally important that is. 
You know, I told you, I think it was last week, I told you that the Christian life never gets any easier. We're under the assumption, you know, and many times under the false pretense of pastors getting up and saying, you'll get saved and that'll solve all of your problems. Well, obviously, getting saved will solve all of your problems eternally. Uh, but it's not going to just, by the snap of a finger or a quick decision, going to solve all of your problems that you have to go in through life. But it will give you the ability now to deal with those problems and get past them, you know, where um, you didn't have that problem before. You know, somebody said one time that forgiveness is the greatest aspect of, of anything, not only in the Bible, but truly in life. A lot of people have a tough time to forgive people. But you know what? Forgiveness, uh, you know, forgiveness cannot go back and fix the past. But what forgiveness can do is set a new path for the future. And that's the key. And that's, you know, so important in everything that we do. If we don't learn uh, to find that peace of God and then learn how to rest in that and develop that good conscience with God, uh, you know, we're just never going to make it. And that's the reason why most Christians don't. Uh, I mean, they just can't get the victory in their life. Now, throughout the book of Proverbs, we have seen this person that we're going to talk about today who will slander other people's character. Uh, and it doesn't matter if what you're saying is true or not. Uh, and we know how severe all of this can be to the body of Christ and that can do great damage to, to Christ's church. And, uh, you know, and it's a thing where uh, God has enacted a process to deal with issues in our life. We are to go to each other, not to somebody else about some issue that we have. And today, uh, with these last few verses, I want to give you four key concepts uh, about this kind of person. Because this is vital, because I'm just telling you, uh, if you're a Christian trying to do what's right, you're going to bang up against these people all of your life. Uh, the devil's going to make sure that these people don't go away. And it would be a great thing if they would do what's right, but unfortunately, it's just, it's just not going to happen. So I want to kind of build this today around these four concepts that you want to keep in mind and you want to remember. First of all, when strife and conflict between two people, or maybe in a church, or in a community, uh, or in a school, or in any personal relationship, It'll always be the result of somebody bearing, uh, you know, uh, uh, bearing the problem and carrying it on and making it worse and then just trying to fix it and solve the problem. You know, and it doesn't matter, as I said, whether it's true or it's false. Uh, last week, I ta taught you a great lesson on mind your own business. You know, keep your nose out of other people's business unless they ask you to bring it in. And that's how it usually starts. We talked about grabbing the dog by both ears, you know. And then, you know, you also want to remember that the talebearer, the gossiper, uh, will be continually spreading information uh, about other people all the time. And, and uh, you know, and there's no church that's going to be problem-free from this. Uh, you know, it, 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 you can be keep it to a minimum, obviously, if you deal with it biblically, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But, you know, and if people will just grow up in the Word of God and realize that God has given us a biblical process if you have an issue with somebody or you have something that you're not happy with or you're not, you know, there's a process to get that dealt with. The problem is most people really don't want to deal with it. And we'll talk about that as we get a little bit farther on here. Second thing, a talebearer will be basically a dissatisfied person in their own personal life, whether it's male or female. 
and uh, they're basically an unfulfilled person. Uh, they don't have anything really going with the Lord. There's not really any power of God in their life. Uh, and, uh, you know, so they, 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 they try to find what they want. They'll always stir up strife to try to get something that they themselves can never attain. And they're always focusing on their issues with somebody else. And many times it's because they do that because they want power. Uh, you see it in any general election in America, how that the candidates just tear apart the other person. I mean, gone are the days when you can just have a debate about who's going to be president and just talk about your qualities, why you should be better. Now we've got a mudsling to the place where it's unbelievable. And why do they do it? Because they want power. They want that notoriety of being the president of the United States or governor or, or whatever it may be. Many times it's because they want fame or they want somebody to recognize them or they want the attention or the status that comes along with it. Some people's diet will just be a constant diet of drama. And all of their lives, they've got to have some issue that involves other people. Uh, and that's where they find their fulfillment. It's the goofiest thing on the planet, but it is so true. And I have seen it all, of my, all my life. The third thing, we talked about this last week. You want to remember that deceit and flattery can take the form of a joke aimed at you uh, in a negative way. We saw this last week, how somebody uh, takes a cheap shot at you and then says, oh, I'm just kidding. I'm in, I, I was making sport. And they, they use humor to mask the real intention. You know, and, and you see this all the time. Uh, it's, uh, I, love, I love going to camp. I think camp is, is, you know, is one of the greatest times that we have at our church for our young people. But if you ever want to see this at its best, just go to any church camp. I mean, the little groups of girls getting together, you know, and they don't like this person, so they get the little group over here and start talking about this person. When I was a high school director and I was a high school pastor for uh, three or four years before I moved into the college and career class way back right after the battles of Gettysburg, and <clears throat> it was the number one problem that I always had to deal with, the little bickering going on. The guys didn't do it too much. The guys were... You know, you'd get a, a guy that would bully somebody every once in a while, but the, the teenage girls were just ugh, off the chart. And there'd always be some drama going on. Somebody didn't like so-and-so. And they're not mature enough yet to handle it biblically. So they get other little mature girls, and they start going around, and, and they, don't, they don't see the damage that they do. I would suggest, if you're, you, I know you guys have your little, Jack, I know you have your little nights and everything. If you want to fix this, just get a movie night and rent the movie Carrie. <laughs> now, that'll fix it all. Here's a little gal who was a sweet little girl, and all the other were after her and did all kinds of things, and it was prom night, and they made a fool out of her, but unbeknownst to them, and I don't remember, I saw the movie. I don't even think I ever saw the movie. I think I just read a lot about it. But anyway, she, she turns into this whatever, and she just comes back, and she opens up the whole can. I mean, it's, 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 it's good to see it. Every, every teenage girl ought to see that because the girl you're talking about and picking on right now may be the sequel to Carrie One. I'm telling you. It used to drive me nuts. And I get it, you know. I know. Kids are kids. I understand that. Uh, but it's a thing where, uh, you know, as 
we, we see it in all the things that happen in churches. You know, little groups getting together and little drama queens, you know, wanting to play out everything. And, and I understand it, but it's something else when it gets into the adulthood that you see it all the time. Then the fourth thing. And if the strife or the contentious person is not dealt with biblically, and there's a number of ways you can do that without, you know, hurting anybody, uh, and separated from the church in, in extreme cases, uh, or a congregation or a school or, or whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. It goes across the board. You know, it will continually uh, burn like a fire. And we saw this last week, how people will just keep adding wood to the fire, and it keeps burning. Last week, we saw it in verses 20 and 21. We just talk about a person like a coal of fire or a hot coal in a fire igniting other coals, and it just keeps the thing burning. And, uh, you know, it's someplace that's got to stop because it just too many innocent people get hurt. And, you know, we should know uh, and be on our guard that that will be uh, the devil's main attack on the church uh, outside the attack of the Word of God that you find in first uh, in Genesis chapter 3. The second greatest attack, once he takes the Bible from you, would attack the unity. And I left you with a great verse last week out of the book of Psalms, how beautiful it was for the brethren to, to live together in unity. And that's the goal of God. The goal of the devil is to destroy that. So once he takes the book from you, which is your source of unity, then he's going to, he's going to come after the oneness of God's people. And God's people, hey, I'm going to show you an example after a while. God's people just fall right into that. They really do. And the Bible is clear on dealing with these issues. And, uh, you know, the Bible is filled with, with examples of it. I mean, uh, you know, Paul said in, in Romans chapter 16, 1 for 7, he had the problems in his day. You know what he said? He said, mark those that cause division among you. He says, let it be known who the people are who are going to try and destroy uh, the church's unity. Because other than outside the Bible, which is the premier thing, the unity of the church is the second thing. And, of course, you can't have the unity without the unified Bible. So, it, you know, and he, and he named them. You go in 2 Timothy 4 and 1 Timothy 1 and 2 Timothy 4, 4 and Acts 17. He actually names who these people are in marking them. It's incredible. And, you know, and Jesus did the same thing in Matthew chapter 23 when he was dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees. He called them out. He marked those. And they were certainly trying to divide the nation of Israel from, from, from what he was trying to do with them. Uh, you go back in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 27. Elijah is up against the prophets of Baal. Boy, he, you talk about calling them out. I mean, he, he really incredibly just goes to town on them. And, you know, and if that wasn't enough, your translators are your King James Bible. If you look into the dedicatory, they spell out the two people groups who are taking the unity and the harmony out of the body of Christ. They tell you who to stay away from. It's incredible. And today, you know, we'll look at our last set of verses and finish out uh, this chapter here. And... uh, uh, I want to read for you here, uh, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28. Now, that's a lot of verses for us. So everybody reach across the thing there and grab the person's hand next to you and squeeze it so they don't fall asleep while I read this long thing here. The words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. 
burning lips and a wicked heart are like a potsherd covered with silver dross. He that hateth dismembleth with his lips and layeth up deceit within, within him. When he speaketh fair, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Whose hatred is covered by deceit, his wickedness shall be shown before the whole congregation. Whoso diggeth a pit shall fall therein, and he that rolleth a stone, it will return upon him. A lying tongue hateth those that are afflicted by it, and a flattering mouth worketh ruin. Now, uh, Darren, are you back there, Darren Orange? Oh, okay. I want to have Darren pray. Darren told me back there, you know, he came up with his prayer. Ten years ago today, Darren got saved. So, Darren, stand up and ask God's blessing on the, on the uh, sermon for me. Now, I know you've been waiting for this split moment right now. I think this is a great Easter message. Now, I know in most churches today you get, our lilies didn't show up this morning. I'm not sure what happened to that. Uh, the dogwood tree, uh, somebody stole it. We had it out front last night. Uh, I, I know in most churches you get that standard Easter message, you know, that you all uh, love to hear. Uh, and, and, and I get all that. But I'm going to tell you something. I think personally, for what I'm going to say today, and it may not seem like it from where I went, and I saw the disappointment in many of your eyes. But personally, I think this is a great Easter message that I'm going to give you this morning. And the reason for that is that Easter, Easter is what we do as Christians, is, is all about the resurrection of Christ. And, you know, and we, we make that emphasis all the time. Across this world today, people are gathering together and are celebrating Easter. Now, I don't have a problem with that. But what I do have a problem with is that the resurrection is the vitalest part of your salvation and my salvation that there is. And a bunch of people getting together on Sunday to celebrate Easter, the resurrection, and never talking about the power of that resurrection that is the ability to change your life from what it once was to what it is now. That's where we're at today. We want the concept of Easter, the resurrection, but we don't want the power that comes from it that's going to change our life to make us a new creature in Christ Jesus. Now, I have a problem with that. <clears throat> and Easter's all about the resurrection of Christ and our new changed life in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, most, as I said, most churches today, most Christians, uh, their churches are packed today. We don't have that many more than we normally do because we don't put that big emphasis on Easter that everybody else does. But I would say to you, whether you come here all the time or you're not, I would say to you, why are you here today? I mean, why, why are you here today? I mean, if the resurrection has made no difference in your life and you're just like one of the millions out there that stumbled into church today because of the fact that it's, you know, Resurrection Sunday, it's, it's Christmas, uh, Christmas, it's Easter, and Christmas is coming. Uh, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, it talks about the power of his resurrection. I know him, and the power of his resurrection, being made conformer to unto his death, and the fellowship of his suffering. You see, it's not just about he came out of the tomb. It's about when he came out of that tomb, he changed everything about the world. 
And now you and I have the ability to be a new creature in Christ Jesus. And because that he did come out of that tomb, the power of God now can rest in your heart and your mind to give you the ability to get over everything that we're not willing to get over. Amen. You know, and these verses today, each one of these verses, I made this real simple today. Each one of these verses, you know, I, I went by and picked out a, a, just a key word that I want to focus on. And those, those key words basically say everything about what needs to be said about a changed life. I mean, <clears throat> I don't look at myself as a great preacher. I look at myself as a reality check. Uh, because we all got to stop and look and take a reality check of where we're at. You know, you can get moving so fast in everything, including your Christianity, that you lose the check on reality of where things are. And you slide into that Christian spiritual mindset that actually has nothing to do with the Bible or the scriptures or anything that really has to do with God. And, you know, and so I just come down through here and I thought, wow, here's a couple of four or five words that I think are really key words that fit into these verses that will fit into this thing. Now, the first thing he says in verse 22, he says, the words of a talebearer are as wounds and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. Now, our first key word here is going to be the word belly. And it says the innermost parts of the belly. Now, sometimes in the Bible, that's likened to the word bowels, you know. Uh, and it, it always stands in the Bible for the emotions that we have, deep-seated uh, in, inside us. And, you know, what we, we see it spiritually, uh, you know, and we, we know that we're saved. And because we are saved, in a spiritual sense, you can't kill another Christian. Oh, obviously, you can get a gun and shoot him, but I'm talking about in a spiritual sense. If you're alive in Christ Jesus today, you, nobody can take that from you. And nobody can, no other Christian can get up and, and, and kill that in you. And I want that to be clear, but I want to tell you what they can do based on verse 22. They can sure wound you. And brother, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, we wound the brethren all the time. We hurt them and do damage to their reputation or harm to their testimony. And, you know, and speaking of wounds, I want to tell you, I know why he used the word belly here, because the worst wound you can ever get is a belly wound. I mean, I know all word wounds are bad. Head wounds are usually fatal, and I get that, and but, you know, a belly wound in combat is the worst that you could ever have because there's so many vital organs that are connected to that part of your body. And, you know, and there was guys on D-Day and, 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 and that, that tried to get across the shore on Omaha, Normandy, that were just, their whole stomachs were just blown open by shell splinters and laying there on the beach with, with all their intestines hanging out. Guys trying to, uh, crying, trying to put them back into their stomach. That's the worst kind of complicated wound that you can get because it can get complicated real quick if much damage is done in that area. You know, back in World War II, most bomber crews that flew over to Germany, they had like a 14-hour, 20-hour many times uh, trip there and back. Most of those guys never ate breakfast in the morning simply because they knew if they got hit by flak or they got shot down or got wounded and got a belly wound, that was the worst wound you could have. We don't do this in the military anymore, but from the Revolutionary War up to World War I, and actually World War II, one took place, was a bayonet attack. And I know that when I was in base, they still gave you a bayonet, but it, you didn't do anything with it. I mean, you opened your sea rations with it. They don't do that anymore. 
the last real bayonet charge was in World War II, right after D-Day with Colonel Corps and 101st Airborne, and, you know, he led a bayonet attack and got the Congressional Medal of Honor for it. But that's really the last one. But back in the day, those suckers were that big. And you didn't sharpen your bayonet. You left it as dull as could be. You know why? Because you were trained and you bayoneted somebody to stick them in the stomach. And that, the duller it was, the more, the more damage it would do. And the Germans even got onto it and made one that was about that long that had saw teeth on the back. So when they stuck it in and pulled it up, it, it called you all the way home. It got you. I mean, but in a spiritual way, Slander will hurt you just like that. It's a deep wound. And so he uses the word, the belly here. Go down to the innermost parts of the belly. You know, slander and gossip, you know, being a talebearer can be one of the worst wounds that you can, you can give somebody. And there's a couple of reasons for it. The first reason for it is the fact that it always hurts more when the person who nails you is somebody that you thought was your friend. You take somebody you thought was your friend, your brother in Christ, or your sister in Christ, and you did things together, and suddenly you find out that they're, they're, that belly wound that you get is from them. That's tough. Back there in Zechariah chapter 13, it talks about, uh, it talks about the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and, and it, 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 he, somebody comes to him and it says, And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thy hands? And he shall answer those are which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Bible says he came unto his own and his own received him not. I could understand how the world would want to get rid of Christ. I can understand how the world would want to crucify him. What I can't get is why the people that he came to as his Messiah to give them eternal life and to give them what he wanted, why they would do to him what they did. But then at the same thing, I asked myself, why do God's people who are all part of the body of Christ, you're saved and on your way to heaven today, why do God's people want to wound other brothers and sisters in Christ? And I'll tell you something else that makes it so bad. It's like going up, slander and gossip's like going up to the Empire State Building and carrying 2,000 feathers out of a pillow, throwing them up in the air, and then trying to go back and get them all. It's impossible. You know, you see retract, somebody will say something in the newspaper that's, you know, is, is not true, and then they'll have to reprint a retraction. Retractions aren't worth the paper they're written on. You know why? Because nobody, half the people don't see it, and once it's out there, it's out there forever. So, I mean, a belly wound is the worst wound. And you know what? The resurrection of Christ should have fixed that. We ought to be helping each other. If the resurrection of Christ Easter Sunday made a difference in your life and my life, then we ought to be there to help the brethren, not hurting the brethren. Look at verse 23. <clears throat> Burning lips and a wicked heart are the potsherd covered with silver dross. Now, wow, <laughs> I think this is one of the greatest verses uh, that I've, I've ever read in the book of Proverbs about uh, our dear slanderous brethren here. I think it's great. And the key word here is potsherd. Now, that's a piece of broken pottery, if you don't know what that is. And if you know anything about the Bible at all, you'll know that that's found in great detail in Job chapter 2, verse 8. Job got covered from the top of his head to the crown of his foot with boils, the most painful way, things that you can have. And they ooze and they pus and they get up and they break and they open and they're running sores and they smell and all of those putrid things. Can you imagine a man from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet 
covered in those. And the Bible says in the book of Job, chapter 2, verse 8, that, you know, he lost his house. He lost everything. Whirlwind came down and broke. All the dishes got broke. He gets a piece of pottery, and he's sitting on an ash heap, what was left of his house, scraping off the pus with that piece of pottery. That's what he says the slanderer is like. Slander is just like that. It festers. It grows. It's like a running sore. It stinks. And it gets worse and worse and never better as the tail bearer spreads his or her discord like poison. Now, the thing I love about this verse, <clears throat> covered with silver dross. Most people would read that, wouldn't think much about it. They just think the silver or dross, you know, whatever. But what a great concept. You know that dross is not pure silver? Dross, dross is the impurities that come off the silver as you purge it. Think about that for a moment. This person is a phony. I'm not saying they're not saved. I believe they got saved, but the dross, the silver, which represents redemption... They never got the concept of redemption and they've covered themselves in the impurities. They've never had a purging process in their life. You know, as a Christian, every day of our lives, we ought to get better. You ought to love the Lord Jesus Christ and be better in your Christian faith this year than you were last year. We have birthdays. We celebrate them here, and I think it's a great thing. But for me, birthdays ought to be a great reality check. <clears throat> and you ought to ask yourself every birthday, uh, the greatest gift that I ever got, you ever got, was not just somebody would gave you, is the salvation that God gave you the day you got saved. And we have it here, like Darren today, we have known physical birthdays, but we have spiritual birthdays. <clears throat> you ought to take a reality check on the two. Every day, every year you live another year longer physically, are you more in love with that book and God than you were the year before? See, that's the reality check. And that, that shows you that, that there's, something, there, there's something, something going on. And when you do that, you can't understand that without recognizing what God has done for you. And that's what this day is all about. This day is all about is the day God came down and died on the cross, came into that tomb and resurrected. And because of that, you can have that silver in your life. But some of God's people don't want the pure silver of his redemption. They always want the dross. They want the impurities. They want to say they're saved, and maybe they are, but they want to never take the concept of redemption and always stay impure in that. And today, the day of the resurrection and God's death and his salvation, you know, all it means to some of God's people is the fact that, yeah, he came and died, and we're going to go to church, and then we've all got to get out of there quick because we've got to go eat. We don't use our salvation many times to help people, but we sure use our salvation to hurt people or do nothing with it at all. People like this don't get people saved. You sow discord among the brethren and destroy the very unity uh, that this day is supposed to stand for. And uh, you, you, you keep people from getting saved. Note, it says burning lips. That's like a burning desire in Romans chapter 1. It likens the coals, hot coals and wood uh, on a fire. And, and, and these kind of people just can't wait to spread 
the discord because your, your silver is dross. It's fake. I'm not saying you're not saved, but boy, you never got the concept of real true redemption down, which is pure silver. You just got the dross. And we know the first Corinthians chapter three, that the Bible says that no other foundation can a man lay, which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And on that foundation, we're to build three things, gold, silver, precious stones, gold, the deity of Christ, what we know about him, silver, the price tag that God paid 30 pieces of silver is what he was sold for. So silver in the Bible represents redemption and then precious stone. That's people. When you fall in love with the gold and know everything about him, you can't love him without understanding what he did for you. And when you understand what he did for you, you'll spend the rest of your life helping people, not hurting people. You know why you don't? Dross. The impurities, but you never got the silver. You got the gold, but you never got the silver. And it's just the way it goes. And I, and I ask you, I, I, you know, I, if I could speak to Christianity all across the world today in their Sunday morning, sunrise services, whatever, I'd ask them, what are you doing here today? Well, I'm here to celebrate what? His resurrection, really? And what is different about you today because of that resurrection? That's what I'd ask them. What's different about you than the world that you live in? I mean, this is the one day that it, 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 it you know, if you're going to miss church a lot, this is the absolute day you ought to miss. I mean, you show up this day, everybody's focusing on the fact that he died in that tomb or on that cross, went into that tomb and resurrected. And with that resurrection came the power of his resurrection. And we say, no, thank you. Look at verse 24. Oh, there's another one. He that hateth dismembereth with his lips and layeth up deceit within himself. Now, our key word here will be dismembereth. Dismembereth means to give a false appearance, to be a hypocritical, to uh, conceal the real motive and intention and, and to hide our true uh, uh, pretense or intention of what we really want to do. The verse shows also the real motive behind our slothful terror-bearing who slanders others. It's hatred. And yet you wouldn't find people that would that do this, that would ever admit the fact that they hate people. But a Bible, but what is your point in doing what you do? And it's not just for the people they destroy, but it's a hatred for the very principles of God's word that we trample under our feet because in spite of what the Bible says, we're going to do what we want to do. And, you know, we'll allow the devil to use us. We'll allow the devil to do everything that he does to destroy the unity and yet here we are today on Easter Sunday. I know we got no palm trees. They didn't get here in time. I know we have no lilies. I know we have all this stuff. I just thank God that when Notre Dame burned down, they saved a crown of thorns. But I'm telling you, why do we as God's people come together today? Because that's the day we have picked in history. Okay, I get that. I understand it that we want to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. I get it. Okay, congratulations. But we come here praising it, singing the songs, which I love. Jamie's famous time of the year. She loves these songs. Mine is the camel train. It all goes there. That's an Easter song too. But anyway, we're all here today. 
But nothing has really changed for many God's people. And it, it's a thing where, uh, you know, we, we spend our whole lives taking apart what God is trying to put together. And, and we think that's okay. And we, we come here today, you know, to talk about up from the grave he arose and all that, all that great stuff. I get it. I get it. But at the end of the day, how has that power changed you? What's different about you today than yesterday? You know, you, you wouldn't think that could happen. But you know, you can go through one day yesterday and get into your Bible and find some great truth that God gives you that's you between you and him. And it'll change your next day. It'll change the next rest of your life. You'll find one little key nugget God just give to you because he loves you, and it'll change your outlook. It'll change your perspective. It'll fix your attitude. It'll fix everything that you got. You see, when you have the real silver, when you understand what he did for you, when you realize you don't try to destroy what God is doing. Our job in this church is help him build what he's trying to build, not tear it apart. And the reason why is because it's hatred. It's hatred. And, 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 and don't give me this middle ground. The Bible, Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me. It's just that simple. It says, he that loveth me will keep my word. You know why you don't love, keep his word? Because you don't love me. And the verse says, lay up deceit unto yourself. In other words, you're only deceiving yourself more than anybody else, as you'll soon see here as we move on to these next couple of verses. And then he says in verse 25, when he speaketh fair, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Oh, this is the great one. Now, the key word here would be seven abominations. I've had guys, you know, people in my ministry that I, I would say to somebody, you know, you know how you know so-and-so is lying? They say, no, how do you know? His mouth moves. <laughs> and, you know, it's a thing here where, you know, it, it says when he speaketh fair, believe him not. You can get such a bad reputation that nobody believes anything that you say. You know, I know many of you parents have had trouble with your kids, you know, and thank God many of them got, got it straightened away, but it got to the point where so bad where they would, they would learn to tell you what you wanted to hear, and after a while, you couldn't believe anything they were saying. I've had adults in my life in my ministry that way. I've had people that whenever they come up and say me something, I just say, that's really nice. And I don't believe a thing they ever told me. I just, I, I just, I, you, you can't trust anything that they say. And the verse says, when he speaketh fair, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Now, let me say this. These seven abominations, you want to find them? They're in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. We've talked about it many, many times. Uh, these are the six things that the Lord hates, the Bible says, and then he gives you a seventh one, which makes them abomination. And we know what they are, proud look, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, heart that devises wicked imaginations, he that be swift to running to mischief, a false witness, and then the seventh one that makes it a capstone abomination is he that soweth discord among the brethren. You know, and I've looked at those things for years and years and years and the amazing aspect of the Bible. Not only is that the seven abominations that's in the devil's heart, 
that he wants to destroy Israel with and destroy the church and the church age, those are the same as seven abominations that you find in God's people's hearts that want to tear apart the work of God. Hey, I've met some of the most godly, sweetest, humblest, demonic people you ever met in your life. I've seen women that were the kindest, sweetest woman that would bake you all the cookies you want in your world, but she would rip you apart with her mouth every chance she got, and she was, her, her, her character was black as a side to the bottomless pit. I've seen guys that were deacons and guys that were spiritual leaders, and I've seen those guys be as dishonest and be as, be as two-tongued, two double-tongued, and, and you couldn't believe and trust anything they told you. And yet I look at this, and I'm thinking to myself, Six of things that the Lord hates, seventh is abomination. And I see that those six things, believe it or not, they span the whole course of the Bible. Did you ever see that? He says, a proud look. You know where that starts? That's Genesis 1, 1 to 1, 2. That's when Lucifer got kicked out of heaven because he was proud. Then the next one is a lying tongue. Here we go. That's Genesis 3, where the devil came down and attacked Eve and said, Yea, hath God said. Then he lied about what God said. Here we go. Then the third one, hands that shed innocent blood. That's Genesis chapter 4, where Cain killed Abel. Here we go. Heart that devises wicked imagination. That's Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, God said, now man is evil continually, and every imagination he has is going to be evil continually. Here we go. Number five, feet that be swift in running to mischief. That's from the book of Judges up to Second Chronicles chapter 36. That's all Israel ever did. Get into one problem after another. Read it yourself. Then the sixth one, a false witness. <laughs> That's a crucifixion of Christ. They came bearing false witness against him. How down I save the best for last, number seven. He that soweth discord among the brethren. There's the church age. There you go. Now, doctrinally, I get it. This is Israel at the first coming of Christ and later on in the tribulation period. You get over to Matthew chapter 12, verse 43 through 45. It talks about Israel getting seven unclean spirits. I get it. I can put it together doctrinally. It's the Antichrist and the devil and the old unholy character qualities that he has. But without a doubt, I want to tell you something. These are the sins of God's people. These are the sins of the saints. This is where God's people go when they quit feeding their spirit with the things of God and they start feeding it with the things of the world. This is where it goes. The seven deadly sins that will destroy any work of God by God's own people. I mean, you'd expect the world to do it. I, I, I just can't believe that God's people would allow, after, after Easter, the resurrection, what God gave us, up from the grave he arose, all the great things we do, and I'm sorry about the palm trees and the lilies. I should have got on Amazon and got them quicker, but there was a rush on them. With all of those things that we have to make this day what we want to make it to be, the real issue is, so what? So what we have an Easter service? So what we bring palm trees in and put palm leaves down? So what we have? I was at the gym the other day, and the lady said to me on Friday, she, says, she said, well, you have a happy Good Friday. And I said, well, thank you, ma'am, but I got some terrible news for you. It wasn't Good Friday. It was Bad Wednesday. What? Never mind. Go ahead, ma'am. I'm telling you, we make all this stuff, all this pomp and circumstance. 
you know what, God's people traditionally, and I, I appreciate the fact that most of you just, all of you, I mean, you're dressed nice all the time, and you look nice all the time, but you know there are churches that when Easter service comes around, it's a new dress, it's a new suit. I was in a church one time where every Easter the pastor went out and got him an Easter suit. And I'll tell you what, he dressed to the hilt, and I don't have a problem with that. And I've seen women go out with their Easter, you know, uh, put on your hat, you know, and all those things and your Easter dress and all that, get all doggied up and come to the deal. I get that. I'm all for it. But I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. If God's people would spend as much time getting as good looking on the inside as they do the outside, we'd have a revival. But that's not what Easter is about today. It's about the pomp and circumstance. It's about the serenity of the moment. It's about coming out and getting out in a, some place, in a quiet place, while it's still dark in the morning. And the pastor getting up and saying, this is how it was when they came to see Jesus to the tomb. Yes, the same birds that you're hearing now awakening in the trees, they heard back in that day. Yes, some of you are wearing little jackets today because it's cool this morning. And just like it was on that day, they were wrapped up waiting because it was cool that morning. All the things just like it was back in the day. Oh, hallelujah today. Thank God we're here today. And just in a moment, over that hill, you're going to see the first glimmer of the sun coming up. And when it does, let's all hold hands and let's sing up from the grave, he arose. And everybody just gets that warm feeling. I mean, everybody just gets that warm, toasty feeling that deep down in your heart that this is a religious moment. <laughs> and here it comes. Pastors mute now, not saying a word. You can, the silence is so deafening, it's like a roar. Here it comes. His eyes gaze upward. The first rays of the sun come over that little ridge. And everybody's transfixed because this is the way it was. Got a cigarette. (laughs) (laughs) Am I good or what? I'm telling you, I know. I know how it works. It means nothing. And then everybody goes, you laughed at the cigarette gig, but everybody goes right back and does what they were doing before. And it's in a religious moment. And religious moments will not change your life. Religious moments will not fix your problems. Coming here with your Ashtar bonnet and all your frills upon it will not fix your problems. The only thing that will fix your problem is he died on that cross, was buried in that tomb, and resurrected, and from the power of that resurrection you get your life changed. Anything else is just dribble. It's just a waste of time. And I'm telling you, When you got saved, your soul got redeemed. But your flesh did not. And whatever one you're going to lend your spirit to is going to build the character qualities of one or the other. You give your spirit to the Word of God and you'll build the spiritual qualities of the Lord Jesus Christ. You give it to the world and your religious trappings and you'll build the unholy things in there and you'll wind up just like they are here. I'm telling you, it'll be one or the other. 
It'll be one or the other. Remember, back in Job chapter 26, verse 4, when God laid out the sixth question, he's going to ask us most generally at the judgment seat of Christ. You do know what the last question was, don't you? Whose spirit came from you? That's the question today. I have the spirit of Easter. I have the spirit of the resurrection. I'd much rather you have the power of the resurrection to take care of all your problems. But that's where we're at today. Then verse 26. Whose hatred is covered by deceit, his wickedness shall be showed before the whole congregation. Oh, I love this verse. And the key word here again will be hated. But this is the great truth. Simply, he's saying here, I'll read it again. Whose hatred is covered by deceit, you try to cover it up, his wickedness shall be showed before the whole congregation. You know what he's saying here very simply? We know who you are. In every church in America, you will have these kind of people. I've seen them all my life and seen them all my ministry. Some churches will have less than others, but no church will be immune from them. I mean, you preach good and hard and teach the Bible, it keeps problems to a minimum, but let's face it, we're all human, we all make mistakes, and there is no perfect Christian, just like there's no perfect church, just like there's no perfect pastor. Some churches will have less than others, but everybody have. But along with that, in all those years, in all those churches, this verse was always true. Everybody knew who they were. Everybody. They had developed a reputation as a gossip, a talebearer, a shoulder of discord. And you will learn very quickly who you should talk to and what you should say to them and, and what they should not. And you see, you deceive yourself. You're wise in your own conceits. 1 Corinthians 8, 3 says, If any man love God, the same is known of him. And I'll take that to the other extreme. If any man doesn't love God, it's known of him too. And we deceive ourselves, verse 24. It says, layeth up the seat within, him, within himself. You know, th- these kind of people are so prevalent that over the years, and I'm not saying this is right. I'm just saying it. it's the way it is. Pastors make jokes about them. I've been in on how many places where pastors used a joke about some gossiping woman in his church just to break the ice. I mean, it's incredible. You become a byword. Pastor said one time, I was any priest, he says, yeah, you know, I have a gossiper in my church. She came forward three weeks ago on a Sunday night and says, Pastor, I want to lay my tongue on the altar of God. I said, Sister, our altar's not big enough. I get it. I had a guy one time preaching. He says, you know what? We got a woman in our church who can lick a postage stamp after she mails the letter. I get it. Had a guy say one time, he says, I got a woman in my church. Her nose picks up more dirt than any vacuum cleaner on planet Earth. I get it. Had a guy get up one same time. He has three forms of communication, telegraph, telephone, and tell a woman. I get it. I don't use those. You've never heard me use those. Ah, it's not me. I will tell you this. The world sees it too. You know, I, most of you young kids won't know this, but back in the 70s and the 80s, there was a TV program called Laugh-In. Remember that? Who was the star on Laugh-In? Church lady. Church lady. They had this lady that looked like any Baptist woman in any Baptist church you ever saw in your life. She had dressed down to her ankles. She had a bun in her hair, and she had a crankly face, and she was, she was just something else. 
And the whole, it, was, it was the funniest thing you ever saw. You probably go on YouTube and just type in church lady. You'll probably get all the information you need on her with some YouTube video. She was hilarious. You know why she was so hilarious? You know why she was a star in that? And she was on all kinds of programs. Do you know why? Because that's the way people really are. And the world saw it. The world saw it. The world saw exactly what it was like. And they were making fun of it too. And in any church, it gets exposed. People see it. Good people know that that's not what you're supposed to do. You're marked. You didn't even know it. Because you're wise in your own conceits and you're unteachable. Nobody of any character quality wants to be part of your, of your world. Because they get sick and tired. Don't you get tired of being with somebody and the first thing out of their mouth, let me tell you about, did you hear about, don't you get sick of that? I get sick of it. And nobody wants to be around your little, sick, your little circle of witches that you have your little coven with. Your little group of, let's go have lunch together. And then you tear everybody apart. Down south, they call that the meeting of the bottom feeders. But it never ends unless you stop it. Unless you, me, God's people simply say, you know what? I didn't come here to hear that. That's not what I'm here for today. And I'm telling you, the joke about Easter, and I'm glad it's Easter. I did. I, 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 I am. I, I look forward to Easter. I think it's a great time. If you're going to do it, let's do it. But I tell you what, if we're going to do it, let's do it right. It isn't about the pomp and the circumstance of all getting clean on the outside like the scribes and the Pharisees, but on the inside being full of excess with dead man bones. It's about getting clean on the inside, and then God doesn't care what's on the outside. Verse 27, whoso diggeth a pit shall fall in uh, therein, and he that pulleth a, uh, rolleth a stone, it will uh, return upon him. Oh, boy, this is a good one. Two key words here, pit and stone. The great principle, and it's taught all through the Bible in the Old Testament, you know, Proverbs 28, 10, uh, Ecclesiastes 10, uh, verse uh, 8, uh, Psalm 7, 15, a lot of places. And it always says that if you go out to set a trap for somebody else to deceive them, you're going to get caught in your own trap. That's the principle. Great principle. And of course, doctrinally, all that material back there, deal with the Antichrist. Again, doctrinally. I mean, he sets a trap for the nation of Israel down the valley of Armageddon. He corrals them down there where he's got them trapped, or so he thinks. He's going to come down and wipe them out, and yet he falls into his own pit. The Lord comes back, and he gets wiped out. So doctrinally, that's what it's talking about. But in a practical way, oh, it's so true of life. Now, the second key word is stone. And that stone here will be a reference to Christ as the smiting stone in Daniel chapter 2, verse 45, doctrinally. But we know and you know that, uh, that in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, and Romans chapter 11, verse 7, 1 Peter 2, 6, and Isaiah 8, 14, that Christ is called the chief cornerstone. And doctrinally, I get it. The chief cornerstone that Israel uh, rejected became a stumbling stone and it crushes them. I get that. I get that. But in a practical way, Jesus Christ is the rock for your life and for my life. He's the stone. And as the chief cornerstone in an inspirational application, the chief cornerstone is when you build a building, you tie all the courses in the blocks to that chief cornerstone. And what it's saying there that you and I are in the bodybuilding business for the Lord Jesus Christ. You're building your temple and you've got to tie in every doctrine, everything you get to build that body into him, the chief cornerstone. 
Uh, you know what a lot of God's people do that are like the people we're talking about this morning? I'll tell you what they do. They roll that stone out of the way. You push Christ out of your life, don't you? Oh, you go to church and you claim to be a Christian and you probably, maybe you are. But as far as the hardline doctrine and Christ being the chief cornerstone in your life, you roll that rock out of the way so you can go do your own thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 says, and that rock was Christ. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 13, uh, we get the, uh, it's the word of God. We get honey out of that rock. In Exodus chapter 17, you drink water out of that rock. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 31, it says, our rock is better than their rock. And we sing the song, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself with thee. The old songwriters knew what it was. They knew exactly. They understood exactly. Rest in peace through a good conscience toward God. And I'm, calling, uh, I'm telling you, uh, Lord, uh, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. My faith is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but only trust in Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. He's the chief cornerstone, or he should be. And that's what we do. We want to do our thing. We're saved. And then we have the Bible in front of us. We have the, the direction of God in front of us. And we just conveniently roll that stone out of the way. We put our Bible over here. We put our church over here. Oh, and we just go do what we want to do. But as the verse says, sooner or later, that rock's going to roll right back on top of you. You ain't going to get away with it. He says in verse 28, a lying tongue hateth those that are afflicted by it. And a flattering mouth worketh ruin. Now, in the beginning of our message, I showed you how that, as I said, and I said it throughout his, doctrinally, uh, all this is dealing with the Antichrist and his attack on the nation of Israel, which we see beginning in this 20th century, beginning to head that way very clearly. And this set of verses clearly shows his hatred for the nation of Israel. All you'd have to do to find that to be true would go back to Revelation chapter 12 and 13 and see uh, his attitude toward the nation of Israel and then go over to Revelation chapter 17 and 18 and Babylon, mystery religion, the mother of harlots and see the end result and it's very clearly laid out for you there. But inspirationally, boy, it's a great principle for what we're looking at today. Because no matter what anybody says or what they claim isn't true, this is a reference to God's people who hate the truth and the principles of God's word. Oh, they would stand up and vehemently deny that, but I'll say it again. The Bible says, if a man loves me, he'll keep my words. Don't tell me you love God and the word of God when you've already rolled that rock out of your life. It's a reference to God's people who hath the truth and the principles of God's word who will engage themselves in the six, seven things that God hates to be used of the devil in sowing discord and destroying the unity of Bobby of Christ. Just go through the Bible. You already got the seven things that God hates. Go through the Bible and get the seven things that God loves. And in your own personal life, you want a reality check, just see how they line up together on an individual basis. And that's just the way it was. He, 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 we destroy the very thing that the Bible says Christ loved and he died for, the church. 
And I'm telling you, I get it. People can be so easily influenced by the wrong character qualities. It's an easy thing to do. I mean, you can get, uh, you know, you can get and fall right in behind what the devil's plan is to destroy and let him use you. One time the Lord Jesus said to Peter, he says, he rebuked Peter saying that the devil was in Peter. Now, Peter was one of the chief apostles, one of the big three. And he says to Peter, to him, get behind me, Satan. To Peter. And when you look at the context, you see that Peter was a great guy. But at that point in his life, Peter's trying to keep him from going to dying on the cross. And Peter, as good as he was, is being used to the devil because the last thing the devil wanted Christ to do was to go to that cross. So he was using Peter to try to influence Christ not to go. Jesus saw it and he said, get behind me, Satan. To Peter. Well, you go back there in the, in the Old Testament in the book of Job. And the Bible says there was a day when the sons of God came before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And they had this little discourse about Job and Job's faithfulness to God and Job loving God and the things of God. And the devil challenges that. And he says, why shouldn't he love you? <coughs> Look at all that you gave him. You see, the devil will always attack your motive. So that's why you've got to have a good conscience toward God and keep that motive pure. Because that's what he's going to go after. He says, Job, well, why shouldn't he serve you? Well, he's got the biggest Ponderosa ranch down there. He's got all kinds of money. He's got 10,000 cattle and all that stuff. Why wouldn't he? You know what? You take all that from him and he'll curse you to your face. Well, God took that from him and Job hung in there. And then he comes back the next time and he says, you know what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You touch his body and put him into severe pain. And he'll curse you to his face, your face. So God let him touch him. And that's when he got the boils. And he's scraping the pus off those boils with the potsherd. And lo and behold, this shows you how the devil works. The only time she's mentioned in the Bible, Job's wife. Her 15 minutes of fame. But she's remembered for this by every preacher that ever preached any message anywhere on Job. You know what she does? She comes into Job in his agony and his deep time when he's scraping this stuff and it's an absolute mess and he's in touch pain. And she asks him, are you still going to retain your integrity before God? Hey, Job, curse God and die. wonder where she got that from. You see, she was used. The devil got into her subconscious, got into her weak spot, and here is one of the greatest men in the Bible that she should have encouraged to help, but instead she takes a shot at his integrity and his character and then tells him exactly the message the devil wanted to give Job himself. You need to curse God from his own life. Don't tell me it won't happen with God's people in the body of Christ. It is so easy for us to fall into that trap. Just like it's so easy to fall into the trap that Easter is something special today. I wasn't out of bed 15 minutes and the texters started rolling in. Praise the Lord, today is the day. He's out of the tomb, the tomb is empty. Thank God the cross is empty. 
hallelujah, God, heroes. And I'm saying to myself, why don't you give that to me on July 1st? And I always text back, that's great. Did you just find this out? Now, I don't mean to throw a wet blanket on anything. Maybe this is my problem. Maybe I need to get a little off kilter sometimes, but I just, I just can't. I thought I read somewhere in Colossians chapter 2 that we as New Testament Christians weren't supposed to have any holy days. Now, I know that's a wet blanket. I know some of you go out here and say, well, he's against Easter. I'm not against Easter. I'm just against taking one day out of the year to celebrate the resurrection when it should impact your life every day of your life. That's what I'm against. I'm against God's people. Two times a year, they make their pilgrimage to God. When he's born and when he's dead. And you know what? There ain't nothing in between for them. I'm telling you, if the power of the resurrection and Easter is true, and I believe it is, then the greatest reality check we could have is being here today. And I'm telling you, this is the greatest Easter message you'll ever hear. You know why? Because it's a reality check. I'm not sending you out of here all pumped up and fluffy like a marshmallow blowing in a hot July wind. I'm telling you the truth. If that resurrection hasn't changed your life and you don't have the power of God in it because of it, you better look deep inside. Something's wrong somewhere. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 13. I get it. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching vain. And our, your faith is also vain. Yea, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he raised not up. And if so be that the dead rise not, then and if Christ be dead and uh, not raised, then Christ be not raised and your faith is in vain and you are yet in your sins. The resurrection is everything. We've relegated it to a day. We'll forget about it tomorrow. We didn't think about it. Why, the Catholic Church has got to have a whole month to keep them reminded of it. They start with Lent. And they do all of that stuff to keep them reminded. You give up something. Oh, yeah. Oh, that. You, you, you give up something so you can understand sacrifice. So you know what you do? You give up what you really don't do anyhow. That's human nature. God never required you to give up anything uh, for 40 days before you stop and think about it. You know what he wants? He wants you to be a living sacrifice unto him. He wants you to be everything to him. He doesn't want you to do it for 30 days before you get there and then forget it the rest of the year. He wants through the power of the resurrection and a changed life for you and me to be different. Not just one day of the year. Philippians 3.10, I gave it to you a little bit, that I may know him. Okay, you're saved. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. You see, it's a process. You know him, salvation. Then you get the power of his resurrection. And then you become part of the fellowship of his suffering. And through that, you become conformable unto his death. 
There's a process to be conformed to him. But all we want to do is just go Easter. The power of his resurrection to change your life. And 10 million of God's people today all across this world will celebrate that day, but will have never allowed the resurrection power to change their life. And we, we make fun of the Muslims. You're no different. They make their pilgrimage to Mecca every year, and you make yours to church twice a year. You're no different than the Roman Catholic who makes his way to St. Peter's Square or the Buddhist who makes his way to the tomb of his ancestors so he can worship the reverence the spirits. For us, the resurrection never changed anything about us. Oh, yeah, maybe you're saved. Praise the Lord. I hope you are. But as I said last week, to you, the message of the truth of God's sacrifice for you will simply be what God did for you. It will never be about what you do for him as becoming a living sacrifice. And Easter's just another day. You see, most preachers want you to leave their church service with a good feeling. I never worry about those of you who are doing what's right with God because the Bible says the man who loves the honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet. You'll get a blessing out of it when I take your hide off because you know you need it. But you, most churches, they want you to come because it's a pomp and circumstance. It's an exercise in, um, you know, here we are. Look at us. What a warm feeling we've got today. Oh, I've been to church and the music was wonderful. The, the spirit was great. Oh, the pastor was such an adoring message. It, 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 was, just, it was just a wonderful time. The sun was out. It was warm. When I came out of church, I felt the sun on my face, the warmth of God's love in my heart. You have a cigarette. <laughs> Nothing ever changes. For you, it's all the scenery. It's all the aesthetics. It's all the things that are around, the pumps and the props and the circumstance. If you were in a field someplace, in a cave someplace, if you were in some place where you had nothing religious whatsoever, you couldn't function that way. And yeah, I want to tell you, the true child of God, back in the old days, in the dark ages, they didn't have any of those things. Of course, they never recognized Easter either. To them, the resurrection was every day of their life, and they didn't need a pomp and circumstance service. They didn't need a church. They had what they had in their heart that nobody could take from them, and the resurrection was a life-changing blood flow in their life and their veins because of Christ's death on the cross. And that's what God's people had to be. I'm not against today. I'm just against the people that use this as some spiritual prop. I'm tired of God's people that claim to be saved and never do anything for God. I'm tired of God's people. And I'm not talking about anybody here. I'm just talking about in Christianity in general. Uh, churches are packed today. I remember one time a pastor, he was so excited because he looked out into his church and uh, the place was packed on Easter morning. And boy, he was so happy because he had a great crowd, filled the capacity, had to put down chairs. That same, next, same pastor the next week was getting ready to go out and preach and there wasn't half the people there. All those people decided not to come back to church that day. You know why? Because to them, the power of the resurrection meant nothing. It was just a day. It was just, here I am. Look at me. Give me that nice, warm feeling, and I'll go out of here feeling good about myself. 
But let me tell you something. If the goodness in your heart isn't out of that book, I don't want you leaving today feeling good about yourself. You'll probably be mad at me. That's okay. I've been in hot water so long, I'm hard-boiled. I can deal with it. I get it. But you know what? Even through that anger and that madness, maybe the Holy Spirit of God will come down and touch your heart and say, you know what? I know you didn't like it, but he was right. You know it's not real to you. And you know what? That wasn't a bad message because all he told you in that message was, one, it wasn't real to you, and two, I want it to be real for you. I want you to have that fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ because that's what it's all about. And with that, we'll close out one of the greatest chapters in the book of Proverbs. See you next December.